being a generalist in this kind of industry really helps you because there are so many new things that you have to adapt to and do with every new project and every new day. It's important for one to be able to like switch gears very fast and jump from one thing to the next without being intimidated by things. If there are people out there who are like me, who are generalists and not expert at things, I just want to tell them that there's place for you guys. It's not like everybody's looking for just one skill inside you. Welcome to Tangents by Out of Architecture. Out of Architecture is a career resource network helping designers apply their incredible talents in untraditional ways. We're highlighting some of our favorite stories from the amazing people we've met along the way. We will hear how they created a unique career path for themselves from the wide variety of skills and talents they developed in and out of architecture. Our guest today, Jill Shah, production designer at Future Colossal, shares how she found her strength as a generalist, asserts herself to create opportunities, and harnesses the power of storytelling in design. I love chatting with Jill and hearing how she approached every part of her journey, making the most out of every opportunity. When I meet people who have untraditional paths, I usually ask about those first jobs you get after moving away from architecture, because hearing about those jobs where you're trying to get your foot in the door really show how determined you are to create your own unique path. I hope you can relate and feel encouraged on your own journey. Welcome to Tangents. And the first question we like to ask is, how would you describe yourself in three words? It's a tough question, but I wouldn't say I am driven, curious, and I get really involved. Ooh, can you say a little more about the really involved part? Absolutely. I just, sometimes it's hard for me to detach myself from something that I'm doing at work or related to work. And it just reflects like from the person I am, even if I'm not working, I'm just like, if I'm into something, I'm really into it. And it's really hard for me to just cut off and detach myself from it. And sometimes it's a good thing. Sometimes it's a bad thing. So I try to use it as a good thing most times, but yeah, it's a balance. Yeah. I think a lot of architects can relate to that. Sometimes it's not the demands of the job, right? It's just like you want to do your best. And I'm sure we'll hear more about that. I'm I'm looking forward to that. (laughs) Uh, What is your background in architecture? So I don't have a very long background in architecture, but I did do my five-year degree back in India. And then I worked as an architect for a couple of years. I was freelancing mostly, and I had my own projects that I was working on. A couple of them were interior design projects, and a few of them were architecture projects. And then I did an internship at a really big architecture company back in India. So all in all, it was like six and a half, seven years, I want to say. And I was into that field. And then I decided to move to the States and switch things up. And uh, what are you up to now? And maybe you can share a little bit about the transition. Absolutely. So right now, I work as a, a production designer at this experiential marketing and themed entertainment agency called Future Colossal. It's in New York right now. And we design like interactive and immersive experiences. And they range from like, different industries. We've done stuff in theme parks and we've done experiences for like retail stores and brand marketing, but it's always interactive and something on a physical architectural scale. And my transition is, I think back in India, when I was practicing as an architect, I wasn't very satisfied. And even in my days as a student, I knew that I could be good at architecture, but I didn't ever think that I could be really great at it. I didn't aim to be one of the architects, or I didn't ever think I'm going to design a famous building in my life or something. And 
outside of that, pace was too slow for me. When I was working on my own projects and when I was interning at that firm, it's like a project lasts for a year minimum and that it keeps going on and on depending on how the schedules are, what the project management looks like. So it was just, and I, I in general, am a person who likes to keep doing new things as soon as I can. So it wasn't something that was exciting to me. So I was at this crossroads where I did want to move out of architecture, but then my options were limited. I didn't know what to do because a lot of my peers and colleagues, they moved to UX, UI design, graphic design, and visual stuff. But I reflected back on who I was as a person during my five years of school. And I realized that I was not a person who made pretty sheets or pretty looking presentations. I didn't know like good color theory. That just wasn't me. But I really enjoyed building models and doing stuff with hands. And if you're making a sculpture in the college or something, I was really like into those kind of things and getting my hands dirty. So I was like, okay, maybe it won't be right for me to conventionally just step into graphic or visual arts. That's just not me. And it didn't feel like something that I could be good at. So I was just browsing and I thought I might do a master's outside of India somewhere and see if that opens up options. And I landed onto this perfect course called um, MFA in Design and Technology. It was at Parsons and I applied for it. I got into it, but the moment I started classes, I was like, this is, I don't know what I'm doing. Like I was super new to programming and the very first class I ever attend, they start teaching, like we had a bootcamp, a three week bootcamp before the classes really started where they give you a primer of code and like programming and just techie stuff. And I found myself like really questioning my decision that am I at the right place because I used to run away from computers and now I've like worked with them and actually do things with it. So that was a, a big struggle, a big gamble actually. But at some point I was like, okay, if I've made this decision, I'm going to stick through it and stay with it and see where it goes. So I did what I could. I practiced. I took a lot of different classes that I really liked. And like, I made it through my master's. And then Future Colossal happened like about two and a half years ago. I first joined them as a freelancer. And I didn't like exactly qualify for the role that they were looking for. But the CEO of the company also transitioned from being an architect to being a creative technologist. And he was like, hey, I resonate with your journey. So how would you like to come on as like our QA tech instead? So QA tech, basically my job back then was to like test all the games and interactives that other people used to develop, make sure they're up to quality and standards and test it for UX and bugs and this and that, and then release it out to people. So I wasn't really enjoying that. That's not what I wanted to do. But there were two things which made me take that job. One was that I didn't have other options because I was graduating out of college. Sorry, COVID, like right in the middle of COVID. So I didn't really have any other options. And the second reason was that the work that company was doing was really exciting. And I saw that if I prove myself and if I make my place in this company, there's maybe a chance that I can be a part of making these things and not just testing it. That's my journey. That's how I'm here. And I, I see on your LinkedIn that the title creative technologist, can you talk more about that? And so a little more background information, because I know people that work in experience design and one of our, our first guests this season, Abraham Bjergsen, he was an experimental designer. And I feel like it is so aligned to how architects function and think, Absolutely. but that as a career or a job title is like very 
Or is it the same? No. So creative tech, even when I was first introduced to the term, I didn't quite understand it. And even if you ask creative technologists, everybody's going to give you a different definition of what they think it is because it's such a wide umbrella. There's so many things you could fit inside those two words that it's insane. Like, I think like the way I define it and use creative technology is anything where like I'm using tech to uplift my design projects and put some character into it. And that tech could be anything. It could be a software, it could be like a hardware or a sensor. And these days it could be generative AI. But like, it's just the idea of leveraging technology as a tool to make your creative pursuits better rather than using tech for tech's sake, which is how I describe creative tech. And I happen to land in this subset of creative tech, which is very similar and very close to architectural design because I deal with physical spaces. And it comes naturally to me, but I know a lot of them who's like moved on to designing experiences on the web for your phones or for your browsers and screens. And there's people who are doing things with purely just hardware. They're making new objects and product and industrial design. And sometimes I also feel that like parametric architecture and computational design could also be like facets of creative tech, because that's essentially what you're doing. You're using algorithms to drive and make your design decisions for you. So that's what it is for me. My title, my role, fortunately, is very exciting. I wouldn't say it's similar to being an architect. Like still a lot of the job I do at my role is like looking at plans and making sure things work and designing physical spaces. But it, it never felt like traditional architecture to me because just the notion of it is very different. My focus is not just towards making spaces for people. Now it's also about making spaces for the technology itself. Like, you know, if there's a projection map room. We need to think about spaces where the computers are going to go and where the access panels are going to be and things like that. It's a different world of space design. I think it's faster, it's paced more, and I think I enjoy it more than that. So in that sense, I would differentiate it from architecture, but it's very similar, very close. Yeah, it does sound very similar. Like when you're saying, where do all the computers go? It's like trying to do a reflected ceiling plan and make sure that all the devices end up there connected and not overlapping lights. It's the same like things that you have to coordinate in your head. And Absolutely. And like you learn to optimize spaces for not just people, but you start optimizing it for the technology that you're using so that you can maximize user experience. That's the trick here. And that's a lot of what I do, actually along with sometimes scenic design trickles in and there's like a cool prop or a cool object that we're trying to make. For example, I recently worked on a project for Squid Games, The Trials. It's like an immersive experience that's going on in LA right now. And we made like boats that had button controllers in it. And we made a lot of games which had physical harvest, physical props and game boards that you can play different games inside. So a lot of that is inbuilt with tech and integrated technology. It's just a fun thing to do. And every day I'm doing a new thing. I'm designing a new experience. And I guess, yeah. The OOA team, we all got together in New York and went to the Color Factory. And yeah. that's all experience design. It feels like Absolutely. someone curated all of those mm -hmm. different rooms. And it was magical. Like I thoroughly enjoyed just playing around in it. And I think we might have said this while we were all there, that that's what architects want to do. That's what we, yeah. we get to do with our project. Exactly. And then we end up doing something completely different, buried in drawings or coordination yeah. or like project management. So I guess my question is, this is like all the skills we developed and plus the creativity part of it and like 
making something from an idea that's all there right yeah. and then with the creative technologist you also have to be very much like a generalist too right that's yes, why absolutely. it's not like a very specific thing that's why it's so vague you just use whatever yeah. you can to solve the problem absolutely it's always with me it's particularly true because i wouldn't say that i'm an expert at any one particular thing if you ask me no that's not the answer you're going to get for me and even at my company like my team knows that i'm not the person you go to if you want one specific thing. But I'm a true generalist in the large sense of things because I know a lot of things. I know some of everything. And then I'm able to mix those things together and come up with ideas and look at things from a larger perspective. That's what I actually also really like about my background in architecture is because it, it gives us a bird's POV. You can look at things from higher up and make sure like you can figure out instinctively if things are working together or not. That just comes and you used to like plan on that scale and then you're planning for smaller spaces, which a lot of my colleagues don't quite, I wouldn't say that they don't have that point of view, but it's different. It's different how I understand things and how they understand things. And I do in some part give credit to my background in architecture. I think it's just there's so much potential in this space. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's very exciting. Yeah. Actually, you were saying that your background in architecture helped you because you have these two points of view that you can hold, yeah, yeah. like the large scale bird's eye. And then also mm -hmm. you care about those little details, how everything fits yeah. together. Like architects are notorious for just caring about the tiniest details as well. Absolutely. Yeah. And what's really exciting that I found that I feel like that ability to think at a large, like very high up and very detailed combined with the startup pace is just like a playground, right? Because Absolutely. architecture is too yeah. slow. But you can really fly with that in a startup yeah. environment. It's That's one of the things that attracted me to this. It's like you are conceptualizing something. It's just on paper. It's scribbles and doodles and like a bunch of words. And then six months later, it's built. It's done. You see it happy. You see it experienced. And you grow so much in those six months because it's like the concept that you came up with and the experience that was built are very different from each other. They're insanely different. But at the same time, in a short space, span of six months, it's harder when you're in those six months to see that growth. And it's only when you come out of it, take a step back, you get to learn from your mistakes, you get to be proud about the things you accomplish. That's really exciting. And being a generalist in this kind of industry really helps you because there are so many new things that you have to adapt to and do with every new project and every new day. It's important for one to be able to like switch gears very fast and jump from one thing to the next without being a without being intimidated by things so to say it's a good way but i also know a lot of people who reach out to me who come to me asking questions regarding this and sometimes they're not very okay or comfortable with being a generalist they have issues like hey i'm not an expert at anything and i'm underconfident and i don't know how to go about this and i felt similarly like a couple of years ago I, when I was looking for jobs, whereas in the market, there was this point where I was like, okay, I know a lot about a lot of different things, but I'm not an expert at something. And that was giving me a sort of imposter syndrome or something, if you can say. But now after working in this industry, I feel like I don't regret that anymore. And in fact, it's great that I have those kind of skills because it just helps me achieve and helps me do newer things and not get stuck inside just one single aspect of projects. So that's something really exciting to me. And like, if there are people out there who are like me, who are generalists and not expert at things, I just want to tell them that there's place for you guys. It's not like everybody's looking for just one skill inside. Do you have anything that comes to mind to help navigate 
that very vague world of like how to find your place in a career, like in a job description in a way. And I say yeah. that because I feel similarly that I've developed a lot of skills in the past few years that I can handle a lot of projects. But yeah. how do you communicate that to someone looking to hire you and almost take a chance if your experience, your CV doesn't line up to the job description? Right. You have to very quickly prove yourself in a way that they might not be used yeah. to. Absolutely. What I like to do and communicate that like I can do a lot of things is first, you got to sound confident in yourself and like you cannot be doubting your own skills because a lot of people make those mistakes. Like when I talk to people, when I talk to current students and somebody comes up to me, they're like, oh, well, I don't do this well and I don't do that well. I'm like, don't focus on those things. Focus on things that you do well and make sure that you're like marketing yourself in that way. And the other thing that I really like to do is I talk about projects that challenge me the most because they're also projects that I grew from the most. For example, I was doing this project. It was with Citibank for a Paralympics campaign. And I knew Python. I, I could program and I could develop Python to the basics. I could write simple scripts. But the task at hand back then was to like devise a very device, like a never before done thing. And I had to write something with eye tracking, which when you're standing like foot away from a screen, and it was a difficult task like two years ago. It was not easy without AI and stuff. Like things were not super ahead two years ago. But I still did that. I took my time. I was not very efficient in doing that task, but I learned some resources. I asked mentors and I did that. And I managed to make that project happen. And when somebody asked me about like, how do you deal with new things? That's one of the things that I talk about that, hey, there's all these resources out there and there's all these teams and other people who help you do what you have to do. You just have to have faith that you're going to be able to do this. So I guess sounding confident, talking about the projects that challenge you and how you grew from them are two things that I usually do to like make people aware that I'm capable of handling multiple things or doing different things. I agree. I can think about experiences both as an architect and then just like in the tech space where yeah. I think back to like what I had to deal with and like getting through to the other end. So if someone's yeah. like, oh, can you do this? And I'm like, it's not like bragging. It's because of what I've been through. I'm confident exactly. that I will figure out a solution. And then yeah. I, I like that. Like you're speaking from yeah. your own confidence because you worked so hard on things. Mm -hmm. That makes a lot of sense. And also sometimes there are chances where just because of the breadth of knowledge you have, you know what needs to be done. You can connect the dot, the steps of something that needs to be done. When you don't know something might be how you do it. And that's where I feel like you can start talking about resources where, okay, hey, I have these contacts. I can put you in touch with these people on how to do it. Or like somebody who is expert at this one particular step out of your multi-step project and they can help you do that. But I feel just having a general broad idea of how and what something needs to happen for something to be done is a great skill by itself. And that only comes with having a breadth of knowledge. You know, you can't confidently devise a plan or devise a project if you don't know everything about a lot of things. So I guess that's where it comes from. You just read a lot and you look out for people and you talk to a lot of people and gather knowledge, gather information and store it somewhere in your brain. And it just comes out when it has to. Yeah, pretty much. What would you say are like the, the skills that you through all the different situations and mm -hmm. like 
the different projects, what do you usually find that you fall back on as like strong things to help carry it through? And that's a very vague question, but as an mm-hmm. example, like I try to over communicate and make sure mm-hmm. like the ball's not in my court that I keep like pushing to move things along and being like a little too organized. So like when I don't know what to do, I fall back on that. So mm-hmm. I'm curious what your like strong skills are. I am really good at being nosy. I want to know things that I have no business knowing. So if there's any project going on in the office and I'm not like directly on that project, I'm not even working for it, but I still want to know what's happening. So I'm going to try to sneak into meetings and talk to all the project managers and talk to all the developers and like constantly keep asking questions where they're not needed. And people have by now, my teammates have realized that's how I work. So they encourage that. Nobody is like pushing me away or nobody greets me with negativity in the sense that, hey, Jill, please stay out of this. That's never the answer. They like, they know that if I'm doing this, it's going to help them in some way or another. So if I'm being nosy on a project that I am on and like there's a meeting between the project managers or between the developers, I'm a designer, so I'm still like separate from them. But if I know what's happening, what problems they're going through from just my perspective, you can pitch in, you can give in solutions and maybe it fixes their problems or maybe it doesn't. And maybe something I say is so horribly wrong, it actually gives them another idea. I just feel like talking and wanting to know about everything that's happening around me is a skill that I'm really good at, but it has almost always helped me in a lot of ways. So yeah, I'm not going to stop being nosy anytime soon. We must be very similar. Like I love that too. And especially in organizations like companies, jobs, groups that promote transparency and like Mm -hmm. really asking questions it's not always the case and sometimes people are like don't worry about it like shut you down but places where you are encouraged to be nosy and ask questions and provide Mm -hmm. solutions and that's valued I feel like that's a great environment like I'll dig into documents or like dig around projects and it's a great way to keep growing and figure connect the dots and sometimes it's also more, it also becomes important though, like as when you said you like go into documents and look at things, it's always nice to go back to your own projects or your own work that you've put out in the past and be inspired or like learn from that because you mature as a creative professional in a very short time. Like who I was six months ago, I'm not the same person right now because so much has happened in those six months. And so to be able to grow from your own mistakes is also a skill that I would like, you know, use to fall back on or as one of my strengths that if I'm stuck somewhere, I'm like, hey, I did this once, it went horribly wrong. So let's not do that again. Let's not repeat the same mistakes. So that's also one thing that people can use to fall back and use as a strength if they are in situations that they don't want to be in. And then can you share a little about what your week or days might look like if people are looking to transition out of architecture and just what is this if they see like postings or things like that? Yeah, absolutely. Just talking about experience design and like interactive immersive installations. My day-to-day usually looks like there's client meetings. You hop on pitch calls and you talk to people, understand and listen to what they want and then come up with concepts. And concepting and brainstorming Basically, just looks like you're sitting down on either a software, which allows you to collect ideas or pen and paper, or even just soft words. You start doodling, you start putting words down. And then from there, you go on to writing blurbs about 
experience and then you start developing UX journeys of how you want people to experience this and what needs to happen, what the interaction has to be. And from there, my role then like stops in a flux there and it's taken over by the developers where they then start making all the architecture diagrams of how the application or how the custom software is going to be made and what are the steps over there. Design comes in and helps figure out the kinks here and there that, hey, what this decision that you're making in the program might affect the UX negatively in this way. So let's change it or let's think of another way to do this. And I am very much like I come back in a very big role when it comes to designing for installation, like when it's time to actually put things in physical space, how they're going to go and fabrication and a lot of drawings making and a lot of physical fabrication. Like we have a fab lab in our office. So sometimes I'm also in the wood shop making things and which gives you a good break from your screens. And sometimes it means talking to other fabricators. So it's a mix of different types of things I do day to day. And sometimes when there's downtime, we are also exploring new softwares. And like right now, I'm working on this internal research-based AI project where we are looking how generative AI can be utilized in design projects and experiences. So it's always a mix of play and some conventional things that architects are used to doing, like making CAD drawings. I do that time to time. That must be fun to only occasionally do it. Yes, it's very occasionally. In fact, it's last September last year, I picked up AutoCAD after four years. And I was like, wait, my hands remember this. My brain remembers this. It's like muscle memory. And I, I was like really surprised by my own memory of that software. It just came really quick to me. In two days, I was using it like I was always using it. But it was just really fun to see that, that hey, I have to use this after four years. Yeah, I think people, if they're curious, they should just apply and see if yeah. it works out. If you not going, if you don't transition and you don't go down that route, it's yeah. nice to just know what else is out there. Absolutely. And honestly, if you look at a lot of these experiential labs, that's what they call themselves these days, there are a lot of positions open for architects in general. Like if you go on to Rockwell, Rockwell Group has this, another subset of them, they're called the lab at Rockwell. And they hire architects who work in tandem with programmers and developers to create these kind of experiences. So like, even if you don't want to transition and switch into other fields, there's place for architects in companies like these who are doing experiential because there's just so much scope and like you need perspective and you need eyes from a spatial designer who knows how things are done. Yeah, this is something I would love to see architecture grow into or architects grow into. One of our previous guests said this in a way that like, the future of architecture should be strategy, not just building what your clients want you to build and like right. putting together the document set to do that. That's too much of what it's becoming and not taking a advantage of all the skills that we're picking up along the way. Yeah, that's very true, actually. Strategy is like, especially in, in experiential strategy is there at every step of the way. Like when you're talking to the client from when you're concepting to when you're installing, like it's all about strategy in a lot of ways because you need to constantly think of how this is being perceived and just like you were taught in architecture right anything that you design and build is for the user is for the people it's the same exact thing it's just now you're focusing more on experience or entertainment or marketing or branding something rather than people living or working in those spaces and that shift of utility or like the shift in what this space is being used for creates a lot of difference on how you need to work and like 
strategy has to step in there, I, I would say. Can you give some examples of fun projects or memorable projects that you've worked on to like give a taste of what that world looks like? Yeah, absolutely. I would actually talk about my very first project in, in creative tech industry and also my, my favorite one so far because it was the most fun. So we did this space-themed playground or like an interactive playground for a retail toy store called Camp in New York. And so Camp NYC has this secret space behind their store where they put up experiences and like interactive stuff for kids and families to go in and play into. So this project that we did, it had a bunch of games that kids could go around and play. There were like interactive games, there were controllers or joysticks. There was this other game where there's a wall full of holes and like kids are supposed to throw balls inside the holes. And if they successfully throw the balls inside the hole, they get scores and stuff. And they were being real time, like there was real time tracking system inside the whole space. So all the kids had a little attached to their hands and anywhere they'd go in space, they could collect coins and play games and collect scores. And at the end of the experience, they could see how much they scored. So it's just like a friendly competition if you're gone with a group of friends or with your family and cousins. And it was just really nice and heartwarming to see because of how much fun kids had playing those games. One, there was a game called Remote Rover in which you're driving a rover in the middle of the space on like surface of Mars or something. So it's like a little arcade style of game. So little elements like that helped bring this whole big thing alive. And there was like a big giant spaceship in the middle of the interactive, which would allow kids to climb into it and then play certain other games inside the spaceship. So it's this layered experience. It was just really nice to see because simple things go a long way. And especially when you're making it for an audience like kids who just have fun wherever you put them. It's really heartwarming to see how projects like this can be successful. Yeah, I love that. And I love that there's an ability to dig in more with the user experience than than we get to when we build projects in architecture. I feel like there's a disconnect because what we imagine happens, does it really happen? And how much do we actually have to get to impact the experience? That that's one struggle that we still always have, like in experiential, like when you're designing experiences and conceptualizing them, what we think that people are going to do and how they're going to react is never true. It's something completely different, like they, the way they use and the way they interact with our technology. It never even occurs to us because when we're doing it, we know our tools so well, we know the right way to use things. But a third person who's coming in who doesn't know anything and it looks and it all looks like magic to them, they're going to want to go and poke their fingers in the wrong place and like things are going to break and things are not going to work out. And that happened with this cosmic amp installation as well. Like we didn't know that kids had the power to break actual hardware and break industrial grade joysticks by just playing with it because they're like, oh, and they're just so hyper and we never anticipated those things. So it's it's still a constant challenge and we learn with every project on like, it's never what you think it will be. And somebody's going to want to break your experience. That's fun. You do get to watch the usage of it, right? And then is there like a retro afterwards review yeah. to like, what did you learn on the project? Absolutely. So like maybe not all projects, like, but most of the projects that we've done have been semi-permanent. Or like at least, you know, two, three months long and then they move to another place or they've been permanent. So we've been fortunate enough to go back and see how it's being used and how people are interacting with it. 
And internally, we usually have post-mortem meetings or like meetings after a project has officially closed to just gather and discuss and learn from what went right, what went wrong, and what are our next steps as a company from here? Do we want to do more of these projects or do we want to do less of these kind of projects? So those conversations start stemming up from once the project is closed and once we see how it's like doing or did we as a team have fun building it? And there are a lot of questions we ask each other to go from there. Those are really great questions. I'm glad. Like, yeah. it's really <laughs> nice to see that happens at the end of a project. Yeah. But is there anything is it- else that you is on your mind to share? Uh, yeah, I do. I thought we could maybe talk about just storytelling aspect of things because like, yeah. architecture is really known for storytelling or like VR, but it's not storytelling. And then a lot of what I do right now is going into narratives and story driven and IP based things. I think that could be a good topic to talk about. Yeah, I'd love to get into that. I feel like that's such a strong thing to convince people or like to convey ideas. It's all storytelling, right? It's creating a world. Yes, please tell me more about your thoughts. (laughs) When I transitioned or just joined or moved into this industry, I had a hard time coming out from the architecture mindset that I have a clear list of spaces. This I have to design that and I have to make sure things like line up and arrange them and plan properly so that it makes sense. Like you can go from your living room to the kitchen and then you can go from your bedroom through the living room it's all set it's right there and you can make a visual map but when I started my master's and then when I moved into this industry a lot of the focus instead was on world building it was no longer about like clear-cut spaces all laid out and planned next to each other in this thing that makes sense it was just about something doing something weird doing something funky something that would like inspire curiosity in people And curiosity only comes with good narratives and good storytelling and like leaving cliffhangers and doing experiences where, oh, you're entering a room, it's completely dark. What's going to happen next? You don't know. So things like that. And it was just this idea of wanting to get into spaces that tell stories and spaces instead that make you live stories. So a lot of what I did, a lot of the projects that I've done here, like, you know, are IP based and Maybe we took a show, maybe we took a movie and then we created an experience out of it. Like there's a, we didn't do that one, but there's a lot of experiences like the Harry Potter experience and the Friends experience. What they do is immerse you into the world of these famous shows and then you can like go and see things and just be a fan. But more than that, storytelling goes a step beyond where you're actually immersed in as a character and then you get to play things. So that's what the Squid Games, the trials experience was about. Like you're an actual contestant in the game show and you're being able to play five to six games under that pressure and competing with other people. So I think what has helped me leveraging storytelling into architecture is that I no longer think about spaces for usability. Instead, I have started thinking about spaces for experiences and like, okay, if the wall finishes black and not green, it's going to inspire certain emotions. And I'm more into this idea of architecture can make you feel things. And that's what I'm in the business for. And that automatically is driven by stories. So using content at the right place, using audio and using visuals. So it's not just built elements, but it's also multi-sensory in a lot of ways. I have to brainstorm and think about a speaker should not be placed here because people are walking in from this side and the speaker should be behind them. So it looks like somebody's talking to you from the back. The minute details and things like that really drive 
experiential storytelling. And it also, they also make up for a good experience in the end. That's something that I really enjoy doing. Yeah, I think that's a really good example. I, I say this a few times that like your intention that you put into it, even if someone is not aware of the intention, they can still feel yeah. the effects rather than things randomly being placed. But yeah. what you said about the speaker is a really good example because you can just place them in a grid. It's a nice mm-hmm. clean layout. But then actually where you hear it, the input as you are moving through in time, they don't need to know that the speaker was placed there for that reason, yeah. but they will feel yeah. the effect of they will, it. Exactly. It's like, it's not about making people instinctively like directly know your intentions. It's about them feeling your intentions behind your design decisions, I guess. And that makes a lot of difference. Like I've been to just a lot of in general interactive experiences for myself, just other people's work and experiences to see how things are done. And what sets apart the good ones from the bad ones for me is that if I'm going in and it's still magic to me, if the design intent is not like directly visible, but I can feel the design intent, that's what sets it apart. I don't know if that makes sense. It's very vague. No, no, no. It does in a way because like, you know how architects love looking at all the details. If you go to one of those famous places, we'll be looking at like hinges or like textures (laughs) on the wall and like literally poking your head in like in every little crack and then be like, oh my gosh, they did this. It's nice when people appreciate it and recognize it, but I still think that level of detail gives the overall experience like a certain level of tightness or like cleanliness or like warmth, something. So it's kind of that level of intention and detail. Mm -hmm. There's also something about spaces being able to make you feel like it's magic. If you don't know how things are done, then you let your brain be free and just wonder about how this was done. Like just the other day, I was visiting this outdoor public art, interactive public art type of event happening in New York with my husband. And I started getting nitpicky about how this was that and that was done. And in 10 minutes in, he was like, Jill, stop. Don't tell me all this because this is magic to me. Don't ruin it for me. So you keep your knowledge to you. Let me just look at things and wonder for myself how it was done. And that, I think, makes for a really good experience because then somebody who has a partner who knows a lot about these things doesn't really want that knowledge because he wants to keep that magic with himself. And I think there's some really good heartwarming quality in there about that. Just that little anecdote and just that little emotion that I want to keep this magic alive for myself. And I guess for that magic to be alive, you don't really have to know all the details. Yeah, that's really interesting. I do love seeing how buildings are made and like how they're put together. And I'll be, yeah. and once I can see that, I'm like, oh, that's really cool. James Turrell exhibitions. Yeah. You get the feeling of the light. Mm-hmm. But then I also like really seeing the knife edge on the opening itself, too. But yeah. I can see that for some experiences, you don't want to know how it's done or made. Yeah, absolutely. So, so yeah, like in Disney, you don't want to see the behind the scenes. Exactly. Happen. You just want the magic. <laughs> you just want the magic. Because it's heartwarming and sometimes you're even it happens to me like when I see something which is completely new and out there and I have never done I still feel like oh wow this is magic I don't know how somebody made this or how they programmed this and sometimes I'm like I really want to know how they did this I'm gonna go in and research and like read all about it and get all the answers and then I'll be like wait this was so simple I could have done it or my team could have done it then it's not magical enough and that ruins it for me, you know, in a lot of ways. So I guess sometimes it's okay to not know everything about something that you really like. 
I'm actually the same way with movies. Sometimes I need <laughs> to know the plot to like keep watching. And other times I just want to enjoy the movie and go along for the ride. Yeah. I have a partner who watches movie like three movie reviews before watching any movie because he just wants to go and prep. Then I don't like it. I need to go into movies without seeing any reviews and then I'm going to make my decision for myself. <laughs> so it's just, I think, different ways of looking at things. Yeah, it is. But I think it is very exciting to be able to be yeah. part of the creation of these experiences and places where you get to take someone on an adventure. Yeah. And it sounds like you were able to work on it more physically, but this mm -hmm. happens with our last podcast guest was like an illustrator. So he's creating oh, okay. these for TV shows and things like yeah. that. Yeah. No, I, absolutely. This thing that you just said, like taking people on an adventure, it's like talk of the town right now in a lot of ways. And also because people want to pay for those experiences. People want to go out and do new things. So it's like, a, it's like the right time for architects to maybe start thinking about making adventures. Because the market's ripe for it. People really want it. Clients and big companies are investing into it. In experiential and just like interactive marketing. And it works because there is audience for it. And there's clientele and there's demand for it. Because adventure. And also trust me, working in this industry is an adventure in itself. It's faster than architecture is. And sometimes it can also like, you can also get burned out very easily. Because you're constantly working on short-term projects back-to-back -back without breaks and it can become a lot. But if you're the type of person that I am and likes doing new things every now and then, I think you would thrive. Yeah, that's a good point. Fast-paced projects, it has the same intensity as the deadline. Like, it's just a shorter yeah. one, so you have even more, yeah. like, deadlines. And there probably feels just like an architecture office at Absolutely. times. It's like, honestly, to me, it feels more like being an architecture school and not in like professional architecture because this kind of stress and this kind of timelines I used to deal with when I was a student back in architecture school was like, oh, okay, you have three months to do this thing and make proper drawings from design to theoretical execution as the same kind of timelines I work with here. So the crunch feels similar to that, but yeah, it's less number of all-nighters. Is there a, more of a level of control that you have? And actually, it's a very good comparison that you say it's similar to architecture school. Because no one's telling you to pull all-nighters in architecture school. That just happens. Just happens. You know, you want to keep yeah. designing and working and building. But yeah. I, I hear from a lot of people that transition out of traditional architecture that they work hard, just as hard, maybe just as many hours. But at least there are more things under their control, like how they work, what they get to work on in some ways. Yeah. Versus in architect traditional offices, I think a lot of it is like, maybe outdated systems or processes that are not changing anytime soon. So yeah. even though you have this grind, is there what helps it become less or like more rewarding maybe? I think for me personally, what makes us more rewarding is being able to see people actually use and interact with the thing that we did, you know. It's that gratification is almost instant. You see it on people's faces that they are happy in that space. They like what they're seeing. And that's just, that keeps motivating you to just do more of it. And apart from that, like when you're working on it, when I'm in the grind, when I'm in the middle of it, it's just the idea that, hey, a lot of people don't enjoy what they're doing. And 90% of the times I really enjoy what I'm doing. So that just keeps me going. That keeps me motivated. Sounds good. And you mentioned earlier that you went to school for an MFA. What kind of things are out there for people to help mm -hmm. develop skills or find opportunities? Yeah, 
I think more and more colleges these days are coming up with multidisciplinary courses like the one that I studied in. There's ITP at NYU, there's this MFA at Parsons, and there's a bunch of other design schools that offer such wide masters because it's at that level at masters, they let you choose and curate your own curriculum, right? Like all four of my semester, I barely had any mandatory classes and I could pick and choose from a wide variety of classes they used to happen. I would suggest that if you're really sure of what you want to do, then I wouldn't go to college for that because there's so many resources outside, especially for the industry I am in. Like there's shorter courses and certificates and like people who are on the internet who are into sharing their knowledge with you. But if you're at a crossroads and if you're transitioning from architecture or from any other field for that matter, and if you don't know where you want to transition, if you don't know what you want to do, then these courses really help you because they introduce you to these like 10 different things. And then you can try it for yourself, low stakes. You're not like risking any actual money. You're not risking any actual resources. You get to try multiple different things and then you can decide for yourself, well, this is what I really like and this is where I want to go. So I guess it's a matter of where you are and how much you know about what you want to do. But there's a ton of courses like this out there that help you just foster your design thinking and tech skills if you do want to get into it. And for you, what did you follow to like that eventually became your career journey or the path that you took? Was it following creative joy or are you really good at this? Like, how did you connect the dots? I honestly relied heavily on my background in architecture. It was never that I didn't enjoy designing spaces. I really liked it. It was just like, I didn't like what I was doing it for. So when I was doing my master's, I was learning programming and stuff. I would always try to like stay away from the screens. A lot of my peers and my colleagues and like my classmates were going into user interaction design and designing apps and for the web three and everything. And they did some really good stuff, but none of that excited me. And I... That's just because I was so involved in 3D spaces around me. I never really could fix it all onto screens on my phone or on my laptop. So I was very sure that this is something that I do not want to do. Outside of this, I was up for anything. So that's how maybe I like saw this coming out of grad school when I was applying for jobs and like work. I would apply for different positions. I was applying for computational design, I was applying for parametric architecture, I was applying to be a creative technologist. Anything that would like let me use the programming skills that I'd gathered during the two years in master's and combine it with my knowledge of spaces and my knowledge of designing for actual spaces. And I think that's how I was going about it. And I'm happy I did that. And then you mentioned that you had that job that got you your foot into the door at Future Colossal. Yeah. And yeah. I kind of love asking people, like, what is that first mm-hmm. job transitioning? Because most of the time, it's like a, a get your foot in the door kind of job. Yeah, and yeah, it's, yeah. There's, it's not exactly what you want to do. So, like, what kind of experiences did you have from that? Or was there a moment where you can see that, like, you've proven yourself that, like, you can expand to other areas? Yeah, what happened with me was that when I was like freelancing again, I was freelancing as a QA tech for Future Colossal itself. But then those six months when I was still a QA at the company, I never really did any actual QA. 
I went in with the thought that, hey, this is my step in. I want to be at this place. And I want to go in there and do what I like. And I got lucky because job roles at our company are like not very regulated and very defined. Like people are allowed to go out of their roles and do things that they like. And it's appreciated. It's acknowledged and people like it. So I think I got lucky in the sense that Future Colossal let me be this person. But I was doing everything. If I saw any scope that, hey, this is something that I could take from people and help somebody out, I would go and ask them that, hey, can I do this for you? Hey, can I do that for you? And I just kept taking up little things like that until there came a point where leadership realized that, okay, she has grown out of her role of QA because she never really did that. (laughs) And she wants to do something more. So then they moved me and I moved teams and switched to different roles. But I guess I would say that nobody's going to give you what you want. You kind of have to go and take it. And I have always been really good at that, at least when it comes to my career and my profession, that if I want something, I'm unhesitant to ask about it. And most often when I've been asked, I've been said yes. Seven times out of 10, I've been said yes if I ask for something. So that's a strategy that works out for me. Yeah, that seven out of 10 is great. You'll get three no's, but you also got ahead seven times. Absolutely. It's kind of like that once you show that you have the initiative, you have the ability to complete it, get it done and a little bit of a vision to what Mm -hmm. you want to create. Those are excellent skills to see. Yeah. And it's just, if you're a self-starter, in general, people are going to notice that. People are going to see that. And people want to use that ability of yours to self-start things because everybody is in this I don't want to use the word race because it's a really wrong word to use. Like it's not, we're not all racing against something, but in an industry that is so competitive, in an industry where you have too many options and too many people want to do the same thing, you kind of have to make your own mark. And when employers, when leadership sees that you are a self-starter and you like to do things by yourself, they appreciate that most of the times. Do you have any advice you would give to your younger self earlier in your career? Anything? Yeah. I, I love the ambitious go-getting attitude you have, but everyone through the journey of growth. Yeah, absolutely. There is one big advice that I want to give my younger self, honestly. And I just think throughout my professional life, I've ignored it very much, is documentation. I am so occupied in doing things and then doing the next thing that I never documented, never did good documentation of my work and then moved on. I never considered documentation to be a part of that project. It was always an afterthought. It was always that something that I realized, oh shit, I want to publish this here or I want to write this article and I don't have good pictures of my work. And that's when I realized that I should have done documentation. And if pictures don't exist, it didn't happen. And that's very true. That's one advice that I want to give to my younger self and my present self, actually. And it's just funny because like in architecture school, all our five years, like professors used to say that document your work, make good presentations, take good pictures. And like they would keep, at least in my program, they kept pushing us students to do better at documentation. I just never really got to it. Documentation also goes hand in hand with marketing, especially these days, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. It goes like it, it goes a long way in marketing and being able to get new work. And I think when I think back on like documentation, it's also a way when like when I fix my resume and things like that and I look back on it, it's a little polished. I was like, that's something I'm proud of present packaging your work up like to show what you it, did. Yeah, exactly. And it's also a way for 
So like I get that with art and design and creative endeavors, nothing is ever really finished. There's always something more that you could do to it, or there's always some more additions you can do to a project or you can do more experiments with it. But doing good documentation also like psychologically, I think it gives it a stop point. It gives it a finish point and it makes you feel like, okay, I can move on to the next thing. And like, at least I look at it in a way that like, if I manage to do good documentation about something, I allow myself to move on it and like go to different things because I have a package to talk about it. Yeah, for sure. And then <laughs> closing question, what are you looking forward to in the future um, in any way, professionally or personally? I am really looking forward to see where generative AI takes experiential and themed entertainment industry. Like it's stirring up a lot of new things around and there's new developments every single day and I'm not really well versed with it. I try to keep up, but there's so much that it's insane. And I just feel like the generation that's coming after me and after us or like people who are going to come into this industry 10, 15 years from now, they're going to be equipped with so many more tools than we have at our hands. And I just am excited to see what they do with those tools. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, so many thoughts there, but you are, <laughs> because the tools exist, but it's still the people that have the vision on how to use it, right? Absolutely, exactly. And a lot of people argue that AI is going to steal jobs and this and that. And I just feel you just have to know how to use it as a tool and leverage it to do things that machines still can't do and will never be able to do. I am not necessarily very negative about it, but I'm skeptical, but I'm also just in general very excited to see that all. Awesome. Thank you so much for this conversation. It's really fun to have. Yeah, thank you so much. I, I hope it was okay and I didn't, I don't know. It was I've great. I've never done this before, so. <laughs> no, it was great. I, I love that it was so like lots of advice and tips. Not all my conversations go like that. So it, I, yeah. it's really nice. And I hope like our listeners get a lot out of it. Absolutely. I hope so too. And like I, I got nervous yesterday because I was listening to all these episodes and, and then you've talked to guests and people who are like, 10, 15 years into their careers and our founders and directors. And I was like, hey, I don't have these kind of credentials. Do I have the authority to, not the authority, but like, am I at a stage where I can even talk to people or share my experiences to people on a platform like this? So I did get into that a little bit yesterday, but I, I don't know, I tried. No, and actually, thank you for sharing that honest experience because that's such a nice snippet because I want to be like, yes, your journey and experience <laughs> It's helpful because we've all been there, right? And yeah. I, I would say you are on the other side of that. I don't know. Some days I feel like I'm still transitioning. Some days I feel like, okay, I've, I've made it on the other side. And it's a mix of things right now. But I'm sure like a couple of years, three years down the line, I'm going to be able to confidently say that, yeah, this is it. This is my footing. Yeah, it probably never is going to feel like this is it. <laughs> Even for those established people, yeah. they're all just like following their creativeness, their joy, their passions. But yeah. I think one thing is that like some people are still just, do I want to leave architecture? So I think uh -huh. all, all of this advice is extremely valuable. Yeah. Just nice because they could be like, I could do that. Yeah. It's uh, honestly, it's not very different from architecture. What I do, it's just so similar. It's just the different side of it. And I think there's so much scope and already a lot of space for architects to join this field and more people should take it up honestly especially because architecture like it's not really serving the people who work in the field very well anymore yeah, yeah it's not it's really not and i wish they'd start teaching courses that i 
learned in my master's in actual architecture programs. I wish that happened someday. Teach programming to architects, teach them Python, teach them JavaScript, teach them things that they could then use in their own work. I think it's really valuable, but I don't see a lot of programs doing that unless you're allowed to take like electives and students go out of their way to take these kind of classes. But that's very rare. Yeah, it's usually the people that are like love programming and they just do it because they pick it up on the side because they love it. It was really nice to chat. Yeah, you too. Thank you so much for talking to me. And I hope you get some good cuts out of this. I don't know. I felt like I was blabbering a little but Everyone feels like that and everyone does. And I, I want yeah. that to happen. <laughs> hey, everyone. It's Aaron from Out of Architecture. If you find these stories inspiring and are looking for guidance, clarity, or just need someone to talk to about where you are in your career, please know that we offer 30-minute consultations to talk about what may be next for you. If you're interested, head to outofarchitecture.com scheduling to book some time with us. Hey everyone, it's Jake from Out of Architecture. We love hearing your stories, but we know there's more out there that we've still yet to experience. If you or someone you know would be a good fit for the podcast and has a story about taking their architecture skills beyond the bounds of traditional practice, we'd love to hear it. Send us an email at tangents at outofarchitecture.com. Thanks for listening to our podcast. New episodes every two weeks. See you then.